You're listening to The Keys 107, opening the doors to endless possibilities in the pursuit of love, peace, and happiness with your host, Rafika and Brother James. Welcome to another Keys 107 production. Tonight we're going to have a fabulous talk with a wonderful, wonderful lady in the theater industry. And I'm Brother James. And I'm Rafika. All right. Now we're, we're together. All yes. Right, <laughs> okay. So well, this lady that we have on... We this lady that we are going to bring on very shortly. She's already in the queue, um, up and up and ready to go. She has a very rich and exciting experience and story to share with out with us, me and you, and our listening audience about how she traversed through the theater industry and made her bones with one. Still talked about production, nobody loves a black little girl when she becomes a woman. Now, we got some exciting news, and Ina Norris is going to share some very, very exciting, uh, I would say, a uh, news release here on the Keys 107. But as you know, before we get started, we're going to give you a moment to get your pen and paper, because you're going to want to take some notes about how you can get involved with the theater industry. Medea Allen, our our uh, organic soul chef, is here, and she's ready to do the healthy tip of the day. The Keys 107 and com present the healthy tip of the day. The healthy tip of the day is to schedule rest periods in your day just as you would for other appointments. Leaving time in your schedule for rest instead of activity is like hitting a reset button for your mind and body. A great way to do this is to take 15 minutes out of your day just to sit and do nothing. Taking time to pause can improve your mood and help you feel more refreshed and focused. Today's healthy tip of the day has been brought to you by wellness expert Medea Allen. I invite you to learn more about me and my services at www.organicsoulchef.com. Alphabet is available on Amazon.com and on Kindle. So get your copy today. For more information, visit them online www.thefluffamily.com. Now, 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 back to the keys. 107 with your host, Rafika and Brother James. So we are here with producer, poet, playwright. Uh, off-Broadway producer, mentor, and educator, 
Ina Norris. She stops by to talk about her journey of becoming and succeeding as a playwright and director. She's a Brooklyn, New York native, a community coordinator who mentors inner city youth through her organization, NYC Young Producers Project, where she writes and produces to educate youth about life through theater. Her debut play, as we mentioned earlier, Nobody Loves a Black Little Girl When She Becomes a Woman, was an example through the experiences of a black woman. And she's going to talk, go in depth about what does that title mean? Because I know that I got a few inboxes saying, what, what is that? What does that title mean? So <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. And we're going to bring Ina Norris here. Your mic is live. Check in. Hi. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Um, I want to um, just do a little disclaimer. I'm not from Brooklyn. I'm from the Bronx. But I was Bronx. born in Staten Island, raised in Long Island. I've lived in the Bronx for um, practically 30 years now. So I'm a Bronxite. <laughs> oh, okay. So I want, okay. Yes. <laughs> but, um, you know, I'll say that's so not I true. Love, <laughs> I love Brooklyn, but, you know, sometimes we need a little shine over here in the Bronx and, and let people know that there's a lot of creativity in the Bronx as well. <laughs> but I do love Absolutely. Brooklyn. <laughs> we love the Boogie Down Bronx. We love the Boogie you Down Bronx. You know, you Bronx. make me really excited um, when you mention that people were trying to actually um, take the title and, you know, basically give the interpretation of the title. Because I am about to launch a a site just for people to write, to be able to speak and to put their um, version of what they think the title means. I'm going to just have a site just for that. So, you know, everyone, you can find me on Facebook, Ina Norris, or or In a Woman. So when I make that announcement, you can also, uh, you know, go on the air and put your uh, take on what the title means because the title means a lot to a lot of people. When they hear it, they get an immediate reaction. And I noticed that throughout the years. I said, you know what? Some people even come up with more uh, uh, revelations than I did about the title. So I really like to um, have that archived of what other people think those that title means. Um, I well, actually, um, I, I go ahead. I'm sorry. Our people are very creative, and when you bring out something of cre- creativity, you know we we feed on it, and it becomes a part of us. So we do appreciate you coming out with things that are uh, attracting us to understand deeper and more of. So uh, before we go down the line and talk about that particular project, um, I want to first have have you paint the picture of how you got started. What what drew you to the uh, theatrics, um, uh, the the film industry? What was the the drive to start going down this road that you're on today? Okay, well, you know, of course, um, many things in our lives are pointing us in in a direction, and we may not always see see it until after we arrived at a certain point and we look back. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I was always writing poems since I was about nine years old, telling stories at five, writing poems at nine. And I went to Hampton, and the funniest thing happened – 
Uh, my last year of um, Hampton, let me in Virginia, it's called Hampton University. At one time, it used to be Hampton Institute. My last mm-hmm. year of college, um, my professor, I was taking psychology, four years in psychology, got my BA, and he gave us this extensive test of what kind of career you would best be in. And most of my peers got like 10 things on the list, eight things on the list. And when I took the test, it was two things. And one of them was mm-hmm. a clinical psychologist and a playwright. And I said, a playwright? Okay. okay, I love plays. I took black theater at Hampton. I went to plays. But that was not something that I was thinking of doing. I had already won some poetry contests. But I wasn't thinking about playwriting, although I had been studying other playwrights. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, just James Baldwin's work um, and Sasaki Shange had came out with something and um, Adrian Kennedy, Funny House of a Negro. I had been beginning to really engage myself in looking at other playwrights, but it still didn't dawn on me that that's what was going to happen. So... Mm-hmm. I went to, when after I graduated, I came to to New York because I'm you know, from Virginia, and I was trying to find my way. What do I want to do? I don't want to go back to school right away. I'm not sure if I want to be a clinical psychologist. So I worked for certain agencies dealing with um, troubled youth. Um, I worked for ACS, which was an agency mm-hmm. where you were investigating child abuse and neglect. And then... Um, eventually I became a parent and that's when my call, I want to say like a call for action really took place. All the experiences I was having with ACS with, Mm -hmm. then I worked with NYCHA, New York city housing authority. Um, all those experiences needed to be, um, shared because I was doing a lot of writing, but what really I'm gonna the main thing happened is that I met this wonderful woman who owned a black independent school called the Learning Tree, and every really? year, they, yeah, they had a really hard time financially. And I would, you know, my son winds up attending there, and I would say, what could I do for this woman? And I didn't really know what I could do, but I knew I had a box full of material. I knew I had work in this box that I had not even shared with everyone how much writing I had, you know. So I called a group of people together, and we went through this box, and they said, oh, this is going to be good. (laughs) (laughs) And then I started making this into a play. Nobody loves a black little girl when she becomes a woman. So initially I became a playwright to raise money for a black independent school. Initially that's how I got started. (laughs) That that became a part of my life. Is yes. that the one in the Bronx or Queens? The the one in the Bronx, the Learning Bronx. Tree Preparatory mm-hmm. School in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. I know about the one in Queens as well. Um, they they were like sister organizations. The Learning Tree Preparatory mm-hmm. School in the Bronx is a little bit bigger. It goes all the way up to eighth grade. Um, but when I was raising money for them, they were only going up to first grade, and that was one of the reasons that I was taking that action. And um, that's how the relationship, my relationship with community and writing was always a marriage. Um, throughout right. throughout the whole process of all of the plays, I always had 
um, a relationship with the community. Hmm. Beautiful, beautiful start. Now, let me just say this. Your your journey actually into film, in the theater, really you were a teenager in college, right? 18, 19 years old or something in that, to the, in that area? I was like, yeah, in that area. I mean, like, okay, listen, I wasn't thinking that I was going to be a playwright, but I did. Att- I'll tell you what really got me out of the sort of speak, out of stop. Um, you, you heard of Sonia Sanchez. She came yeah. to our school. She came to our school. And she was talking about poets who never read their work to anyone. She said, you could really mm-hmm. call yourself a poet if you're not reading, speaking it out loud. And I was, like, yeah. so nervous and so shy. And everybody got up to read a poem. And I was like, okay, I got to do it. I got to do it. You know, I'm just such a closet poet artist. So I read my poem. And she got real excited. And she's like, oh, I'm going to think about that one on the, um, on the um, train. Oh no, on a plane. And that poem mm-hmm. actually arrived because it was one of the it was in Nobody Loves a Black Little Girl When She Becomes a Woman. So that poem kinda had a had a, a long life. <laughs> and I think and I I always give her honor because that statement you don't know those statements that you make, how they impact someone when they're trying to figure out what they wanna be in life. And those that statement she made made me come out and say, if I'm going to do this, I got to get out there and I have to let people know that I am a poet. I have something to say. Mm. Yes. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. So now you, now you get started. You get started. You find that there's a need and a desire for film and for theater and uh, you find that you can raise money to help people that you tie with the community education. But tell us about some of this cha- the challenges that you face as you begin this journey. Okay, so what happens is now it, it starts to change and shift into a business as opposed to just me wanting to raise money for a school. Now I have to look at organizing. I have to look at audience development. I have to look at um, how much is this going to cost um, because I'm now not just playwright, I'm a producer. Um, I have to look at where we're going to have the play, how much work can in a woman manage in a year's time being a small mm-hmm. company. And it becomes the challenges really start to shift because you have some people in in that have a come from a theater world and they – actually don't produce their own plays. You have a lot of playwrights waiting to be produced, but I decided that I wanted to produce and be a playwright so that my work would continually be out there. And, you know, and, and then that's what I did. So the very first um, production um, play, I use, like most people, they don't necessarily think outside the box because I was already outside the box. I use party promoters to promote my, um, to get my audience. And so when theater people would come to my plays and they would say, where did you get your audience? Because a lot of times, you know, they were within a, um, a structure where they're doing a play at a theater house. Someone has invited them in and they have a certain amount of money and 
if there's an audience, there's an audience. If there's not, there's not. There's there's no audience. For me, I had to have an audience because we were independent. So what I did was get these party promoters, and I generally, this is something that I feel really proud of, there were people in the audience that said they had never seen a play before. And mm. I generally, I have met so many people that you started me going to see plays. You know, I wasn't, I, you know, I wasn't even thinking about going to see a play, you know, and, and that was one way that we got people into seeing the plays. The other thing was, um, you know, you have to know, <laughs> you have to look at who would be a great audience for you. You know, um, when I'm doing Don't Play That Song For Me, that's a very family-orientated play. Everyone can come. So can, same thing with Nobody Loves. But when I'm doing Turnstile Warrior, I did focus on, I went to, um, I got, got probations to bring out, I would say, hundreds of youth to that play. Um, it, I focused on getting a young audience because the main character was a young man um, in in that play. So, you know, you have to look at advertisement. You have to look at time. How many how many months does it take for you to promote a play? How many days are you running that play? And planning ahead is so key. You just can't get up and say, I want to do a play, and I'm going to do it in three weeks. You know, planning ahead is very, very important. Advertising is me, important me, now, of course, social media. Let me ask you, so you begin to understand that this is really a business. Did you have mentorship? someone to help guide you through this process and give you like checkpoints of the things that you needed to do in order to have a successful production? I have to be honest. What happened was um, some people even say, oh, you were doing what Tyler Perry was doing before Tyler Perry was doing it. I did a lot of um, street I can't say that I necessarily had a mentor at that time. Somewhere in between that I began to get a mentor uh, or get mentored by just being people reaching out to you. Um, uh, I got advice through Dr. Barbara Ann Tier, the National Black Theater, um, to mm-hmm. Samuels of National Black Theater. Um, mm-hmm. I... At one point, Danny Simmons, um, uh, he's an artist, author. Um, he's also a, a Broadway producer, um, painter, um, and people know him as Russell Simmons' brother. Um, he helped a lot when I started feeling like I needed a, a stronger support. He um, mm-hmm. Right before I did Turnstile, he kind of took me under his wing let me test out the project at his art gallery before I actually put it out there. He was a big support. But that is one of the um, areas, like, um, belonging to the Heart, um, Harlem Arts Alliance is a um, good mm-hmm. support team. Um, there was, uh, you know, sometimes I would um, go to, oh, I was a part of the Dramatist Guild, and they give you support as well. So belonging to certain organizations will help you, but I would advise someone to get a mentor immediately. <laughs> that would be my advice. And okay. um, I did not do that, but that would be my advice, and it's not easy to get one. 
Yes. Believe me. That, yeah, it's not an easy thing. But the reason why you get one, most people think it's because of business. But, no, it's really for support to say keep going, keep going, keep going, um, because it is not an easy business. You know, it's right, not, you know, right. anything in the arts. You could say, oh, this is a lot of work and uh, not a lot of hands until you, you know, get major funding. I've been able to get funding from New York um, Foundation for the Arts before, you know, and, and, and once in a while I've gotten small sponsorship, but most of the time it's really just fundraising yourself and doing your plays and selling your T-shirts and selling little bags at the play and, you know, doing whatever it takes to make it happen. Right, right, right. Now, um, now I think Rafika was telling me that um, so there are times when you are actually producing and acting in the play. Is that something that you do often or something you look forward to? Is Well, um, early on, I used to act, and successfully, Nobody Loves, I was in that for the, for the whole eight years that we ran mm-hmm. that play. Um, I was in it. I kind of grew up in it. You know, you saw me. I had to play a, a 12-year-old <laughs> to a grown woman in that play, and, and it was a great experience. It gave me some solid acting experience. I do drama coaching now because of that experience. But I was in Ancient Mama Crying on the Pancake Boxcar, but that was by accident. <clears throat> because of um, someone not being able to fulfill their role when I stepped in. Um, generally speaking, I don't really um, act. I'm not, I don't act as much as I did. I've been asked recently to be a lead in a film um, that I'm considering, but I'm more, I'd rather coach, direct, and write and produce. <laughs> mm-hmm. Acting and trying to do that at the same time is strenuous. And it's very mm-hmm. strenuous. Some people don't mind it, but for me, I prefer if I'm going to um, direct, I just, you know, directed a short film. I could have played the role, but I decided not to do it. It's just strenuous. I like to focus on the creativity and kind of being meticulous about making sure that the art is, um, you know, projecting what you want it to project. And when you're in the picture, you can't sometimes see the picture. Right. That That is very true. That is very true. So, okay. So I'm thinking that at this point we need to talk about what was your breakthrough? When did you get it? Like when did it dawn on you that you knew this is what I was born to do? You know, what was your your aha moment? I think during the um, roughest times, you know, there was a time when I had um, partners, and they began to, um, you know, have to make a choice between career and and the arts. And <clears throat> I had that um, that you know, um, you know, still working, and you know, am I going to focus on being a commissioner (laughs) or am I going to do this playwright thing and this filmmaking thing? And at some point when 
there is nothing that can stop you from doing it where mm-hmm. it's, it's just you have become almost one with what you do that you cannot stop it because you would actually be like cutting off your arm, you know, and that's, it's just became it. And actually it became bigger than me because even the times that I stopped, people would call me, Oh, I thought I was stopping. They would call me and, you know, get me right back in, in line with it. So I think that um, the breakthrough, it was probably always there, but to really be honest with you, Sometimes being an artist, you can really struggle and still maintain and still put out work and still get, you know, audition actors and not know, you know, taking risks, still taking risks, made me know this is what I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life. Mm, Okay, okay. So was it a feeling? We all go through that. I mean, yeah, I mean, so... I, I mean, was it a feeling? Was it a person? I mean, you mentioned um, Danny Simmons. Was that it? Danny Glover? Danny Simmons. I mentioned Danny Simmons, but no, it really wasn't a person. I just think that, you know, um, you know, th- there's always something churning in my stomach that tells me that, you know, in the Bible it says, you know, to use all your talent and you're going to be blessed. And I feel like I have been blessed because I did not deny what God wanted me to do. And then when I really thought about it, like I said, you could look back and you could think about you were doing it all along. You know, I was telling those stories when I was five years old and, you know, I was so real with these stories and I didn't know that (laughs) all those characters were really going to be played. Like you were doing it all along. And then I'll tell you one thing that really did impress me. And I'm, this is a very quick story um, I had went to Bedford, um, Bedford, what is it? Bedford, it's a correctional facility, Bedford yeah, Hills yeah, yeah, Correct- Correctional Facility. And yes. I, I won't forget this. This is something that's imprinted in my mind, that if you want to call it a breakthrough, it, it could be. Um, we had did Nobody Loves a Black Little Girl When She Comes a Woman at Bedford Hills Correctional Facility. And at the mm-hmm. end of performing, um, one of the eight inmates, all the inmates were able to come, but there was one who couldn't because they had misbehaved or whatever. And it was done in the gymnasium, and you could see where the um, cells were because they were all lined around the gymnasium. And so one of the inmates said, this woman said, um, Ina Norris, Ina Norris, I, um, she wants to speak to you. So I go up to close to where she is, and she said, um, you know, I couldn't come because I had gotten in trouble, and I couldn't see your play. She said, I was hit, and um, the last time I cried was seven years ago. Mm. I was hit with an axe. Someone hit me with an axe. And she said, no, someone hit me with an axe, and I I didn't even cry. The last time I cried was seven years ago. And she said, I didn't see your play, but I heard every word, and I cannot stop crying. I cannot stop crying. And that that meant so much to me because it's just the power of the word, the power of the word. Yes. Here's a woman who hasn't cried in seven years, had been hit with an axe and didn't cry, and she heard my words. She didn't even see it. 
So that was impacting. Um, we went to Greenhaven. Greenhaven is one of the worst prisons in New York State. I thought mm. it was Sing Sing, but I found out from the um, inmates that, no, it's Greenhaven. And we went there to an all-male audience, all men who's locked up. I'm saying this is going to be, oh, my goodness, this is not, this is nobody loves a black little girl when she becomes a woman. You know, the title alone, what's going to happen? What's going to happen with this story of this woman? And when those guys started <laughs> sniffling and crying and giving <laughs> us a, a standing ovation, I know, you know, I, I know the power of the word, the power of authenticity, of mm. telling a story, making a story, not saying, I'm going to do this because I know I want the audience to clap here. Oh, I'm going to do this because I want, and you're not thinking like that. You're writing something that is almost like, you know, um, God is whispering in your ears and you're feeling this fire and you're writing what you feel and it's real and it's not just your story. You thought it was just your story until you told it. And that experience, um, those two experiences gave me a lot of drive, a lot of drive to continue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you brought the men in the prison too. down to cry. I'm just trying to, I'm just getting a visual of what that must have been like, what it must have felt like, even among the, the, the prisoners. They were in, it was, it was an amazing day. It was an amazing day. Um, the brother who um, was able to get us in, I don't know, you know, if this is folklore, or if, if this is really true, but the, the powers that be were so shocked by the reception, they were almost afraid of it because somehow of um, the empowerment part of the the play scared them. You know, I don't know why, like just because it's about learning to love yourself. Um, and mm-hmm. I really, really focused on the black family in that play because there was so many plays and so much literature about us being divided that I, when I wrote that play, I wanted, you know, her husband to be, you know, I guess her hero, so to speak, even though she was trying to find herself, it wasn't the typical black male story that we had been seeing in plays during that particular time. And so they were probably, you know, just feeling, a certain way, but I'm telling the audience responded in such a way. I mean, I, it was just a wonderful feeling. It was a wonderful feeling. It, those kind of things really, um, it's just like imprinting in my mind the power of the word and what that could mean for someone. And so that's that was my drive, having those kind of relationships, you know, so tell me, what are some of the things that you had to do to prepare to go to the prison? What was on your mind? Do, do you do you do you travel with props or how do now, you stage to go to play prison, in prison? That was real interesting because we could not <laughs> travel with props. We can do we could do some light costume changes, um, but not much, like a scarf over something. That was, mm-hmm. was was interesting because when you went to the prison, you really challenged your acting skills. 
because there was nothing. You can hide behind a prop. You could hide a, behind a costume. There was nothing to hide behind. You had to give that character, period. Um, there was very little, um, like, they let us use a table, a chair, but, you know, it was so guarded. I mean, even for us to come in, it was, you know, they had to check everything. Um, we were, you know, they had people follow us in. They kept on saying, make sure that you don't go left when you should be going right. But I do say this, their theater that they had was, the lighting was great. The sound was perfect, you know, and they had been learning some technical skills. Uh, some of the inmates had had, you know, some experience. And I'm sure there's a bunch of talent there as well. And that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's something that I, you know, that I've, I've you know, I'm not going to announce it here, but I do talk with people about doing some more work in the, um, you know, prison system. I'm, I'm, that's an interest of mine. But um, still in all, it was, like I said, they had the perfect, theater in terms of sound and light, but we couldn't really bring anything. We could not bring anything. Um, I just want to ask you a question about, uh, you, you spoke about one of the prisons that you went to was a uh, a woman's prison, right, that you spoke yes. about, right? And then you went to Greenhaven, which is a male-dominated prison. I think it's, I don't, it's not a mm-hmm. max, might be a, but. It's a maximum so prison. Two different, it's a max, right, okay. It, yeah. It's two different audiences, and did you uh, see a differential in the response to your play by the inmates from the, the various correctional facilities? I did not, and I also meant, I should mention I went to Rikers as well. Um, it's always the same. I didn't see a difference in the inmates and the people who paid to come and see the play at Symphony Space. I didn't see a difference. Mm. It's a universal story, and it, it definitely is a universal story. So, you know, I didn't see a difference. They, okay. they may have been a little more humble, like, you know, you know you're away from your family and someone's touching these buttons, and, mm-hmm. you know, what have you, but to cry in prison is a no-no. That's it. That's it what I was thinking. It is a complete no no, you can't do it, but it was just too overwhelming not to, you know, your body is going to react. These buttons are being pressed. You're there, and it just happened. So, you know, I'm not saying every man was crying, but there certainly was a lot of tears in the room. And that, yeah. that to me, when people go and they say they got their Oscars and this and that, like, that's my Oscar. That memory is my Oscar because it just was so profound at the time, and it really made me know the importance, the power of the word. And, you know, then I, the the next play that I wrote was A Secret Lies Inside My Sister's Womb, which takes place, the majority of that play takes place in a prison. So, you know, mm. it obviously got into me, but that's not why I wrote something that was in a prison, but it's ironic that I wound up writing a play that was in a prison. Mm. Well, that just goes no, to show you, if you about... follow your passion, you just don't know what roads it's going to lead to. So you knew you had already had the play. You've already got some rhythm and some movement to play. Now you're being requested to take this play to the prison. How did that request come about? 
you know, I'm. Tr- it was. I know there was this one man who wrote me a letter. That's. I don't know how he got. I don't even remember. I truly can't tell you how this man got any information about me. But he was starting a literacy program in the prison. He was an inmate himself. Now, some people would not have responded to that letter. Really, honestly, mm-hmm. how could mm-hmm. somebody That's know? True. You yeah. know, I, whatever. But you know, I don't operate with fear. I operate with faith, and so therefore. Imagine if I did not respond to that letter, what I would have missed. Right. What I would have missed, and thank God I did. Ironically, um, the man is no longer in prison, and I just found that out this year. He's no, but he's doing a he's doing an arts program for inmates who've come home, and he continues to do arts with them. I haven't contacted him or anything, but I did find out. I was just curious, like, whatever happened to that man who got us to be at the prison and found out that he's home and he is doing arts. So I don't know. You know, these experiences, they're all connected. How do you, how we feed each other, you know, light, and we feed each other power, and we feed each other hope. And so I don't know if um, I may have impacted him. He definitely impacted me by bringing me to the prison. To know that he's still doing it is is a great thing. Well, we're going to go to a very brief commercial break. When we come back, we're going to pick up where we left off and, and sort of move forward a bit. Stay tuned. The Keys 107. We'll be right back. Fluff presents the alphabet is available on Amazon.com and on Kindle. So get your copy today. For more information, visit them online www.thefluffffamily.com. Now, 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 back to the keys. 107 with your host, Rafika and Brother Well, we're back with uh, playwright, producer, uh, poet. All around happening woman, Miss Ina Norris here on the Keys 107. Uh, we are very happy to have her here as our very special guest celebrating Women's History Month. And we'd like to thank all of our callers who uh, have called in and those of you who have um, inboxed us uh, welcoming Ina to the show. And those of you that may have some questions, feel free to inbox us in Facebook if you are too shy to call in and talk directly to her. But if you want to call in, you can call in at 213-943-3618. That's 213-943-3618. Or you can send your uh, question via email to suggestions at thekeys107network.com. That's it. Well, <laughs> what else I th- I th- <laughs> yes, you, get, you have to do that, right? But let me yes. ask you, Ina, um, we talked about uh, a lot of things already, but I want you to talk about your production company, In a Woman Production, and tell us what that is all about and the vision that you have for this uh, production company, In a Woman's Production. 
great. Um, In a One Productions, of course, at, at first was developed because of the first play, but as we went on, we didn't just focus on plays. We also did events. Um, we are now doing short films. Um, we want to tell stories, I, I'll say, through the African-American experience, but with a universal theme for all all people to understand and and to get something out of it. Um, we also started um, a project called the New York City Producers Project, where we take young people and teach them how to produce um, plays, short films, and events. Um, let me just say what kind of event would we have. Like, say, one year we did an artist showcase, 30 and under, another year. Because we tried to at least do something with young folks at least once a year, like some a big project. Mm-hmm. And we, one project we did was um, going into the senior center and um, YAT Walker Senior Center and pairing our um, – young producers up with one senior and they would interview them a series of interview interviews and then they would have to um develop a art story behind that you know a lot of times they did not necessarily develop the art story but they did get a lot of information it became like a little uh a history class for all of us because we would have these round circles and we learned so much through our seniors. So, you know, we would give them dinners. It was just a wonderful experience. Um, one year um, we did, uh, I kind of married in one production, let the Young Producers Project produce a play that I was in the making of at the beginning stages, and it was called Danny's Waltz. As I mentioned, Danny Simmons, an artist, a poet, uh, you know, um, uh, a Broadway producer, he had a uh, a poet a poem called Jigaboo Waltz, and that poem was about nine eleven and how African Americans um, felt during that time. So I took that one poem and I made it a, a play about an artist struggling to be able to do his art, to write again, to paint again after the trauma of nine eleven. And so I let the young people um, come together and really get involved, stage manage, um, do the set, um, just really get involved in the project. Some of them acted as well. Costumes, the whole nine. And um, Danny Simmons, who is a celebrated person, and a lot of people know him, and some people don't, he was brought to tears. He was brought to tears. It was a real powerful piece um, because I felt like, our stories wasn't always told during that that time, during 9-11. And a lot of us had mm-hmm. a lot of stories of what happened to us during that time. And so we put that together, and it, it became a wonderful project. But um, in a woman, we, you know, I, I don't want to just say we focus on women because we don't. I have a lot of men that come and work with us, and I have men on our team. We're looking for more people. On our team, we're looking for interns. Um, I keep a lively group of interns. Most of them grow. You know, they they do different things now. Like one of my interns, um, he just produced his uh, first film. His name is Marshall Davis. Actually, he's the grandson of Ozzy and Ruby Davis. 
and he was my intern. I was so honored that his father, Gus Davis, Guy Davis, wanted me to mentor him because he wanted to write and produce, and I did. And uh, he got really involved for several years, and then he went to film school, and now he has produced his first short film. Um, I have another one that she's now hosting all over the place. I had just, you know, I really love to bring young energy into Inner Woman Productions. Can we make that announcement that you are looking for interns? That's very exciting. Sure, definitely, definitely. Awesome. I'm going to post it on yeah. our Facebook and on, you know, our social media and uh, you know, with your once you give us your the contact information, we can uh, post that for you because I think that's sure. um, very, very, very exciting. And this might be a, the best time to talk about the components of a play. Like, what is what are the the basic elements, the core elements that make up a play? We know the script because we see the script, but right. Well, we well we don't well, see the script. We see the script acted out. <laughs> the audience doesn't see the script. That's not what I meant. <laughs> Right, and I, yeah. Well, you don't, you don't, you see it acting out, but um, mainly, I would say every writer has a style, and my style, I deal with a lot of. Well, nobody loves was skits, prose, and monologues that bridge a story together. So, even though each skit by itself or seen by itself could have stood by itself. That was my goal. My goal was that if you came in in the second act, you would still have felt like you saw a completed story, so to speak. So that play was unique in that way. Um, not necessarily like um, uh, uh, like Intasashi Shange, who had the woman in red, the woman in whatever, and they all did a monologue. It wasn't like that. It had skits, prose, and it and the stories still all aligned itself together because, and nobody loves, the goal was to see how comparing, compared that young girl's life to that, um, the, the, um, the older self and what was the similarities, what was the differences, what did she learn as a child, what did she may need, needed to learn as a child to be able to grow as an adult woman. So you had both of those things going on. So some of that I had to show. But mainly character is really important, um, really understanding your character, knowing who that character is. If that character was to walk off the page and do something else in life, you should be able to see that character so clearly as a writer. Not just, it's like you may have written so much about that character that does not make the play. Do you understand? You might even make mm-hmm. a lot of scenes that don't make the play. You know, for me, I like to use a lot of poetry. Um, almost, I think, I don't know if I if ever wrote a play that doesn't have poetry in it. Um no, maybe one, but I use a lot of poetry in my um in my the characters. There's always a character that's a poet somewhere in the um in the in the play at at a certain time. It just comes it comes. But I would just say basically, um, characters are everything. Making sure you have a beginning, a middle, and ending. That's basic. Where's your beginning? Where's your middle? Where's your ending? Where is um, 
Where's the arc? Well, they use the arc in film mainly, um, meaning like you're going somewhere, there's a crisis, and then how does that crisis, how that, how is it resolved? What does the hero of the story want? What does the characters want? What does each character want? Do you know that answer? That's really important when you are writing a, a play or a film, knowing what each character wants. You know, who is the hero? Who is the villain? <laughs> who you know? And um, you know, they that that's important because if you don't have that driving the um, story, the story can just go flat. You know. Mm-hmm. So those things are really um, important. So what's the difference between, as we would say, a well-developed character and a not-so-well-developed character? Um, for me, personally, when I write, I try to make people more than one-dimensional. If I do make a one-dimensional character, that is my intent. There's a reason why. No one in life is one-dimensional. So the character, you know, if it is one-dimensional, there is a reason. Maybe that character um, is flat. Maybe the character is depressed. Maybe the character has a a disability that only allows them to be very one-dimensional. You know, there could be reasons why, but most of the characters, I like to put a lot of layers in there. Um, that's when, if you can put those layers in there, then you don't have to be stereotypical, okay? Um, the girl in prison, her father could be a lawyer, you know, not necessarily right. coming from a devastating situation. Maybe it was devastating, even though her father was a lawyer. He was never home. He um, he used to snort cocaine to stay up because he knows he has a trial the next day. He couldn't. I mean, you don't know. These layers change the dynamics of the characters, make the characters much more interesting. But I do think that, I mean, I don't throw away the truth of life. I think there's so many stories that haven't been told, particularly in our community. So I do, you know, sometimes thrive on um, maybe more than one story and putting it together. But most of the time I'm just inspired. I think you have to be inspired to write. You really need that inspiration. It's not like... um, you don't just do it because I think I want to be a writer. No, you really feel something deeply that drives you to want to want to write. Mm. Write a character, write about a person. James, go ahead. That leads me to ask ask you um, when you wrote the first that first play. You know, no one um, loves a, a black girl when she grows into a woman, and I hope I said it correctly. Um, what drove you to write that play, and what was the elements that you drew from to develop the characters and the plot and everything with that play? Well, I do remember, like I said, seeing a lot of um, nobody loves a black little girl when she comes a woman. I think that um, I was seeing, I did see a lot of plays where um, I felt that they wasn't completing the story and they were um, taking an element of a black woman as if in life she just came out of nowhere and that she didn't have a backstory. 
she didn't have a backstory mm-hmm. in her life. She just she just came out of nowhere. I just wanted to show someone's heart, black woman's heart, and how she evolved and how she has to learn to love herself, even though there's all these um, uh, contradic- contradictions around her. How does she weed out the contradictions in her life that begins so early that other women did not have to face? Other women were not suggested to change themselves to look like someone else like we did and like we were doing and like we are still being asked to do. And so no one, you know, um, no one is going to the Supreme Court and saying, I don't want a white woman to wear her hair natural. That is real in our lives. This really happens. People are told not to come to work or you look a certain way or whatever. But I wanted to be able to make it a story from beginning to end. Actually, the story begins at the bassinet, and nobody loves a black little girl when she becomes a woman. It starts right there at the bassinet. What is the Mm. first thing that an African-American family is looking for when they see a baby? What do they say to her? And Mm. and you see in the story this little child, this little baby that's born, and you can hear if she could talk, what would she say? Why are they looking at my hair? Why are they looking Mm -hmm. at my eyes? Why are they looking at my nose in this baby? I'm not giving you the words. (laughs) But she's absorbing in the energy. From day one, she's hearing all this. So there is a big question mark. Am I okay? You know, hmm. so I wanted to hmm. explore that. And um, the reason I wanted to explore it, because you asked me why, is because I was working at, um, I, was work- I was always working with young people. So I was working at a community center at a um, job readiness program um, during that time. I had just left ACS where I saw so many children with so many issues and, you know, really growing up in, in many deprived ways. But then I I get to this place, and I hear little girls saying things that upset me. And I'm thinking I, I'm just going to hear that maybe just in this environment. Then I go to another environment, and I would hear little girls doubting their beauty, not liking the color of their skin, not liking their hair, and, and just having to really um, – how do you grow? How do you become somebody when you don't even like your own, you're not even comfortable with the own skin that you're in. And there's so much more to you and there's so much more to do. And that's the beginning. So I, you know, I wanted to explore that. And that's how um, this character, actually the name of the character in nobody loves a black little girl when she becomes a woman is her name is soul. That's her name. Soul. soul. Mm. Yeah, S O U L. Go ahead. And it's not soul as in the rhythm. It's soul finding. She's she's trying to find who she is. Is she worthy? Am I okay? Can I love myself through all of this? And it's not like double dramatic where she hates. This is a woman that's trying to do the best she can in every situation. She's trying to live in her honor, but yet and still, because most of the time, like, just see a story like Precious, and that little girl, you could understand why she doesn't feel worthy. Her mother 
is on drugs. Um, you know, you see that story. But this is a little girl who her mother and her father, her father is wonderful in the story. Her mom is there, but she is still giving some subliminal messages that she's not okay. And that's what people only think that happens to a particular type of African-American woman. But every African-American woman comes to a place where she has to understand herself and accept herself, even though all of these messages are telling her she shouldn't and that, you know, that she should be this way or that way. So I wanted to explore that, and that's how I wind up writing that play. Um, it had a lot of stuff from my life in it um, as compared, um, in comparison to the other plays that I've written. I think that that play had more, um, would be more, uh, a lot of stories that came out of my own experience. I think it's very interesting that you started in, as the infant in, in the bassinet with, with people looking at the baby because that that is when the first physical experience happens with the, with the baby in terms of, of seeing the voices and, you know, of, of the recognizing and seeing the voices that the baby has heard all along, but then strangers come up. And, and, I, and I know one of the first things people say is, look at that hair. Look how much hair that baby has. And look at that nose. And they start picking out different features of the baby and the yeah. baby is absorbing all of this stuff and they grow up asking questions. And sometimes you don't even know really where the origins of these questions come from. Right. Right, exactly, and that's where I wanted to start, you know, and and then after, her, you know, I started with her being a baby, and then you'll see her in the classroom and the little things that she's asking, and it's not being addressed, and so you could see her in the classroom, and then you could see her at the her world of work as a woman, and see the comparison of her being left out of the classroom, her story being left out of the classroom, and her story being left out even mm-hmm. in her world of work. You know, so you see these these stories. Then you see the relationship with her father and then the relationship with her husband and then really understanding her husband's struggle through her father, you know, what her father had to go through. It, it's it's there's some complexity, but it's told in such a simple way that that's what I liked about Nobody Loves. is like anybody could see it and get it. And during the end, that's when, I don't know why ever, like when I said the end of the run of Symphony Space, I remember some Caucasian people coming to me, white people coming to me and saying to me, you know, everybody needs to see that, see this play, because when I see it, I just see it. I don't see it as just the color, I see it as the struggle and how you should just keep fighting to find out who you are and to learn to love yourself, regardless of who you are, regardless of what race you are, you know, and, and I started getting that at the, um, after I stopped running it at Symphony Space, because that's when a lot of, um, it was, the audience was getting really culturally diverse, so hopefully when it becomes a you know, a film, then <laughs> everyone would see it. Okay. Oh, you know. so you made the announcement. <laughs> okay, wait a minute. You could, you, yeah. <laughs> I, but I, it was just like there on my tongue, yeah. It was there. It was, it's okay. Let's talk about that. When did you begin yeah. massaging that idea of making this play into a film? 
Well, um, you know, it was in the back of my mind some time ago, but I, you know, a couple of years ago, a friend of mine, she was going to um, Hollywood and she wanted to bring, um, she's like, you know, she used to she used to work on the uh, promoters team for Nobody Loves. She was part of the promotions, and she's like, I really want to. I have a film that I'm bringing out to um, Hollywood, and I really want to bring Nobody Loves because I really think you should make it a film. And I was like, Well, funny you should say that because I have started writing it as a film. So she took it. She let. Um, Shirley Ralph looked at it. She loved it. She loved the play because she saw it, the play on DVD. She's like, definitely make it a film. And then I started writing it and sending it to people who had already produced films and get their um, opinion because I wanted to, like, make sure that I can make that transformation from a play to a film. This is my first time writing a film, like 120 pages it's so different than writing a play. There's a lot of education that had to go along with writing a film that I had to educate myself to be able to even write it in a film. So, okay, that was like the first breath of air, like, okay, people are validating this should be this should be a film, this was a wonderful play, let's, you know, do that. And so I spent, I kind of slowed down on producing plays just to focus on writing two films, which I wrote, Nobody Loves a Black Little Girl When She Comes a Woman as a Film, and Until the Last Eagle Flies, and then I begin to do the shopping, and the shopping is rigorous. Um, Anyone would tell you when you see something like uh, Moonlight or you see um, some of these films, some of the times it takes 10 years. I know um, Birth of the Nation, it took 10 years to get it you know, get it done. It takes a lot of work to get the financing. I do have two finances in the cuff waiting for more money to come in. So you know any producers or any investors who want to be aligned with this, if you're listening, we're listening, we'll we'll listen to you because um, we're working Mm -hmm. on that part of it. But I did – I did get it reviewed, and people think it's going to be just as successful, if not more, because now we have, you know, a universe. I mean, we can do this in Africa and Europe and Australia, everywhere, and put this film. And I know my just like the gut, how I felt about it when I did it as a play, there was just something telling me that there's something very, very special about this piece. And I'm feeling that same way, and everyone that reads it is telling me the same thing. So, yes, we are going to do it as a film. We are looking for attachments. We're looking for true EPs, which is executive producers. And we we have some people in line already. And, you know, I don't want to throw out names because I don't give them, you know, they didn't give me the permission to throw the names Mm -hmm. out. But some wonderful, special people. Um, involved in making this project work. And so, yeah, this is a big one because I do want a tier one project, which means that it had to at least, you know, be in the millions. And so, therefore, it takes a lot of patience. I have definitely sat down with more millionaires than I ever thought I would in ever in my life. <laughs> I am so thankful and grateful 
to uh, a gentleman by the name of Ronaldo Snipes, who is a um, former heavyweight boxer who sets up a lot of meetings for me. I am grateful and thankful to uh, a man who his name is David Baldwin. He is the um, he works for Stars. Um, he is the executive director of programming, and he definitely gives me a lot of support, at least in terms of information and, you know, just support, just being there um, is a great thing. And this is a um, very hard business to be in because you really actually literally need somebody to walk you through the door if you want a competitive Mm -hmm. project. So in the meantime, I still do my short films. (laughs) Well, because I am determined to do this film the right way so the most people can see it. I am so proud of the guy who did Get Out. Look at him. He never expected to do that film. He spent $4.5 million and he has now made $111 million, right? But there's this saying that black films don't make money. Moonlight, they spent $1.5 million. And a couple of weeks ago, they were at $23 million. okay? Mm-hmm. And we can go on and on. There are so many stories like that. So the idea that I don't want to invest in black film is there's just too many stories because there is a um, what you call, I would say, a cookie cutter. If you follow that pattern, you should be able to have a successful film. And that is, you know, that's really, that's what makes a film uh, lucrative. So I'm, so I'm, I talk I'm promoting little, that, not just for me, but for whoever's trying to get a film out there. So where do you find the cookie cutter uh, format? Is that is that archived somewhere or in the cloud? Do you just it's know a lot. it? <laughs> it's a lot of research. Um, there's certain people that if they, they back your film, they have a meter as to how much money they would bring in. Um, the type of film that you have when you drop the film. Um, of course, your EPs, your executive producers, um, sometimes it is just a sensation. Now, for me, I feel like Nobody Loves was a sensation. Like, there were people who I would meet, and they say, you know, this is my 11th time seeing your play. Mm. I have already did the focus group because I did it as a play. And I already know people come over and over and over again to see it. So, you know, I, you know, that's what I'm saying. They are different. And also with film, I would say mentorship is important and definitely advisement. You cannot, film is harder to get through to me in my experience than doing a play because, uh, you know, it takes a lot of money, cameras, people like on a set, you know, for a film, you probably have 300 people working on a film. So it's great. There's tax credits that you can get um, to help you support the film. Some places the tax credit is 30%. That means you get 30% back on the certain amount of money you spend in that state. There's some states that is 25 there's some places in the world outside of the United States that's 40, 45%. So the investors getting their money right off the, they know that they're at least going to get 45% back. And then there's other ways, you know, uh, once 
the film does a theatrical release, then it can go into something like Netflix, Amazon, or whatever. Then you have all these other venues, DVDs, and all this other stuff. It could have a very long life. Being wise about is important, and getting, like, experienced people to work with you is really important as well. So, Ina, we are coming close to the uh, top of the 10 o'clock hour, and I would not want you to walk away without talking a little bit about the NYC Producers Project and um, getting out information on how people can connect with you. So we're going to go to another very brief break. When we come back, we're going to go right into the NYC Producers Project. And I just want to welcome all of our callers on the switchboard, but uh, those of you who are on the switchboard, if you want to talk to Ina um, or make any announcements on something you're working on that may relate to what she's doing, you got to press the number one on your keypad. Otherwise, we think you're just listening, and that's great. We, we're very happy that you're here. And for all of you that are tuned in online, if you want to call in, you still have some time. The number is 213-943-3618. Again, 213-943-3618. The Keys 107 will be right back. The first of family comes up in the sky. Fluff presents the alphabet is available on Amazon.com and on Kindle. So get your copy today. For more information, visit them online www.thefluffffamily.com. Now, 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 back to the keys. One oh seven with your host, Rafika and Brother Jay. We're here with. Uh, director, playwright, poet, producer, educator, uh, Ina Mor- Norris, who has been talking about the backstage, telling us the behind the scenes skinny on what it takes to write a play, what it takes to direct the play, and where she's taking her noted production, Nobody Loves a Little Black Girl When She Becomes a Woman. And she shared some very intimate um, background on how that play got started and shared some very exciting news on where it's going. And she said it's getting ready to go to film. And uh, before we go any further, Ina, we do have a caller. Uh, James, is that caller ready? Yes. Yes. Uh, uh, This uh, Miss Flora uh, Gilliard, your mic is live. Check in, please. Hey, can you hear me? Oh, yes, we can. Welcome to the Keys 107. Thank you so much. Hey, Flora. (laughs) Oh, my God. God bless you, girl. This this is really great. I was listening in and hearing all this great stuff, and I just want to say congratulations to you. Um, Oh, God. We go all the way back. Um, Ina did her first piece, Nobody Loves a Black Little Girl. Um, I was trying to go on stage and to act for my first time in my whole life, and Ina gave me the opportunity to be part of her plays. And 
only thing I can remember, Ida, meeting you guys down on 115th Street in Harlem in the project, in the community room, and um, it was my first time ever acting. I think Antoinette, are you familiar with Antoinette from Atlanta? Yes. Yeah, um, she told me to come for this audition, and I remember going to this audition in, on 115th Street, and I I was just trying to act. I didn't know what I was really doing, and I remember going there, and I think it was Pamela Lee and you and Juliet Smith. Y'all was at the desk, and you know, I came in the room, and y'all gave me the script from Nobody Loves a Black Little Girl, and y'all said go outside to come back. And I remember coming in front of you guys trying to act those parts out. And after I did that, I now got parts. I played in every almost every character in that play. I played Auntie Marie, a character I played. I played uh, the little girl. I played Snatchback Curl. I played almost like six different characters. It was my first time ever on stage. And I am just so proud, and I am just so overwhelmed right now just to hear how far we have gotten when you were talking about going to prison. All that just, I got a flashback from all that because those were the times where I thought that acting was not something to say that, oh, I'm a great actor. It was about getting the message out to the people who really needed it. And I could, I could, like we go back to Arrakis Island and being in front of those women, and I remember them crying and them coming up to us and saying that they were experiencing the same thing that they were feeling. So I'm just overwhelmed, and I am so proud to hear. Ina, you know you're my girl forever, and I just thank you for giving thank me the you. opportunity to be on your stage and be in all your plays. Oh, my God. Nice. I mean, beautiful. it's incredible. I am overwhelmed right now. Um I was in also the second play, The Secret Lies Inside My Sister's Womb. I played the correction officer. The other day we were just talking about that. I was talking to someone about that play and how I was, um, I played the correction officer and I also played the uh, social worker. Um, all of your plays was always something that was real, that something that I could identify with. So it was easy for me to act it out. But again, it wasn't about us saying that we were great actors at that time. It was us saying, are we getting the message out? And I could say as a playwright, you are one of the greatest playwriters that I've ever met in my life that really tells a good story and tells the real story. And after that play, I think we did another play, Ain't Your Mama Crying on the Pancake Box Car. Now, that was one of the most funniest plays, full with a lot of positive stuff. It was, it was a, I mean, you got to really check this woman out, guys. I am just overwhelmed at this time, and I just, again, Ina, I thank you for being a part of your production, in a woman production. And there's so many people out there that used to come and see Nobody Loves a Black Little Girl over and over and over. And I remember being at the Henry Street Settlement. I remember um, what's that place on Broadway, 96th and Broadway. Symphony Space, I, Symphony Space. Symphony yeah, Space. we did a lot. Um, we did a lot of 
we, we climbed to symphony space, but we had to chemistry a playhouse theater, which is a historical theater that a lot of um, legends started there, I mean, from way back. And what was interesting about that is that Barbara, who she never allowed a first-time playwright to do it in their big auditorium, but she read my play and she said, you will get that opportunity. And that's how everything kind of fell in place and and gave me that status. Like I went to Henry Street Playhouse Theater for the first time, even though it was my first play, most playwrights would never get that opportunity, but she gave it to me. So, you know, there's so many people to thank. I thank you so much um, um, for calling in Flora. And, you know, Flora is a comedian and an actress and a hairstylist and so many things. And, um, you know, she's been there. She's been a great supporter. And I thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, I Flora, you, Ina. We, we welcome you to the Keys 107 community and feel free to join our Facebook group. We have over 16,000 members who have been steady with us for, I would say, about two years now. And um, you are welcome mm-hmm. to use that platform. And also like our page, The Keys 107, Thank you. Um, on Facebook. And, you know, kick with us on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We're doing Majesto. We're just having a ball here promoting uh, these shows and bringing information to people that could help them or motivate them move to the next level. Because I know there are a lot of people in our community who are thinking about becoming a playwright or becoming a stage actor rather than just a film actor and need just need some guidance. And uh, you brought up the most important point that many of our experts have said in different, different areas of um, outreach. They all say, right, James, get a mentor, mm-hmm. not, yes, just any, not just any mentor, but, and, and it has to be somebody who is successful and it yeah. has to be a mutual agreement and commitment. And I want to say right. this. For, I have been mentors to a lot of people, but I want to say this. Even now, I still say, and it's something Maya Angelou said, you need a mentor of every age. You've never been that age before. You never, you know, every day is new. Even as you get older, you still need mentors. And that is why I still reach out to people and ask them to mentor me because it never really stops. And that's the one thing that I wish I had did early on. But I also wanted to talk about for the Young Producers Project real quick was mm-hmm. that um, we are going to be having a meeting um, the first Saturday in April. So if you have any young people that you want to come down, they're interested in theater, they're interested in film, and they're inter- interested in acting, because that we put the acting classes in there as well. So I just feel like a lot of times young people would get involved with New York um, Producers Project um, because they wanted to act, and so I always give them that acting experience and then they can branch out into the other things that they they need to learn about producing and the stuff that happens not in front of the camera or on stage but outside of that but um they can they can become my friend Ina Norris or they can like New York City Young Producers Projects page or like in a woman productions project um any woman productions page and if you like any of those, you're going to get the information about the plays that I do, the auditions that I have, 
the um when I'm gonna show the film First Fruit, which we didn't get to talk about, uh, First Fruit, um, and anything that I'm doing is going to be on one of those three pages. Now our website is in construction right now, so that's why I'm not mentioning that. But they can still. I'm very very interactive with my page. So if you go on Ina Norris and you friend me. I will friend you back if you go on In a Woman. I need more likes for In a Woman, so I'm going to say that straight <laughs> up. And New York City Young Producers as well, because okay. I got so engaged in my play in my my Ina Norris page. Sometimes people don't go over to that, but that's where most of the information information is going to be. If you want to learn about film making, I put a lot of information on those pages. Um, auditions I put on those pages. But if you want to be a part of us, you can call. I don't really. I'm just saying, young people. But anybody who would like some kind of advice, any That's kind of. That's what I was um, getting ready to ask you. You can. Um, you can. You can. Is is that is that films? I mean, is theater a place where, you know, like in the music business, there's there's an age that people say you just sort of like you know um, outgrown your uh, ability to become a new artist. But is that the same thing with theater? Okay, I want to just say this, and this is so, so true of theater and film. You're going to always need a grandma. You're going to always need a grandpa. You're going to always need, there is no character that you can't be. So you can't age out of it because hmm. sometimes you get in a situation where the stars that have been out there or actors who have been out there, they don't want to play the grandma anymore. So now you're starting to act at 40 or 50 years old. You're willing to play that character. They may not want, they're trying to hold on to their youth and playing the star or the um, leading role or the love attraction. I would play the grandma. And even even um, getting a agent or a manager at 70 or 80 is not a problem. You know, you can still be out there. I know um, I, I was assistant director of Walter Jones' um, play, uh, Clarence and Me, and this man gets so much work. And Walter is, like, um, in his 70s. He gets a lot of work. He's always working because they're always looking for that kind of character with a little gray, a nice, spry, old man, older man, (laughs) elderly man. And he plays it like he's wonderful at it. So there's no – I don't believe in the making – don't let your age be a barrier. For Hmm. writing, the older you get, the more respected you are. That's one profession I know. The older you get, the more respected you are because you have more stories to tell, you have more knowledge, and you get wiser. I was also told in class, um, Frank Severa's workshop, that you're never, you're not really a writer until you're over forty. How, if, you know, that's what they would say. They were just saying that you have more solid experience, and and it's not really true. Where everybody could be a writer because I believe everybody is a writer. You know, um, some people don't do it as a profession, but I believe that everybody should be writing something, you know. So, um, no, I wouldn't use age as a barrier. Uh, recently, my son started acting, and his manager, she hadn't, she couldn't find a 17-year-old um, black male. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and, I mean, he's been getting so many auditions. So, don't use, don't think you're not the one. You may just be the one. You know, so please, I, I want people to contact me. I am free to hear their stories, and if anyone wants to get involved, internship, 
when someone wants um, any kind of drama coaching, I do that too. Um, you know, I do a lot, a lot of different things. So I know we just yeah. really want to thank you so much for spending this Wednesday evening with us. And this has been a special show celebrating women in theater because we at the Keys 107 believe that the entertainment key is one of the most important keys of life. And I want to thank uh, Flora calling in and all of the other callers who are too shy to check in. That's okay. Uh, we're just happy you were here. And uh, you can listen to all of our shows. They're all archived on iTunes at the Keys 107. You can listen to the archives on blogtalkradio.com slash thekeys107. You can go to our website, www.thekeys107network.com and catch up with me and my co-host, Brother James, and find out what is going on in the background of the Keys 107 when we are not on the air. <laughs> I am your co-host, Trafika. Oh, and if you want to uh, send us some show, show suggestions, Send us an email at suggestions at the keys 107 network.com next week. Oh, tomorrow, the 16th is the third Thursday of the month. And we have our financial show with um, our expert business consultant and financial advisor, Haru Niket. He's going to be talking about top 10 businesses for women in 2017. We're looking forward to that coming up on the 23rd. We have a very powerful show, Mothers of Children Incarcerated, with Mona Lisa Johnson. And following Mona Lisa, we have a motivational show with Dr. Stacy N.C. Grant talking to all of us, in particular women, on how to get your balance back. Ha! Hot shows for you. We got to go because it's that time. Well, again... We uh, thank you so much, Ina Norris, for coming on to Keys 107. You're a part of our family. May God bless you to be successful in all your endeavors. Until the next time, this is Brother James, Keys 107. It's been a pleasure. Love, peace, and happiness. Oh, and it, it would not be right if we close without letting people know who is that kick butt. <laughs> you know what I was going to say? That kick butt jazz musician you're listening to. That is Ernie J. Smith, South Africa's Pride and Joy. He is playing Odette's song, and we'd like to thank Ernie for just letting us use that piece, because we love it. Good night.
You're listening to The Keys 107, opening the doors to endless possibilities in the pursuit of love, peace, and happiness with your host, Rafika and Brother James.